We're in Revelation 21. So guys, next Wednesday, we are going to finish our Through the Bible study, Lord willing. So that is going to be exciting. And then we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and start all over. And I'll be really old when we finish uh, the second, second time. So I'm already getting really old. Thank you. Yes. So let's pray together. Father, as we look at the promise of heaven and the promise of eternal life, we pray that we would be encouraged, that our hope would be renewed, that our hearts wouldn't be troubled because you have prepared a place uh, for us. So would you take this truth that we know in our minds and really place it deep within our hearts? Pray especially for those that are going through a trial, a difficulty, a season of challenge, that you would really encourage them. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor was meeting with a lady in his fellowship who was passing away of a terminal disease, and she wanted to meet with him to plan out the funeral and plan out the memorial service, which is not necessarily uncommon. And she said, these are the verses that I would like for you to read. These are the songs that I would like to be sung. And then her final request was, I'd like to be buried with my fork in hand. And he said, what? I don't understand. Why, why do you want to be buried with uh, your fork in hand? And she said, well, my favorite part of family gatherings, as well as church potlucks, is when they tell you to hold on to your fork because the best is yet to come. Dessert, right? So, hey, keep your fork because dessert's coming. So she wanted to be buried with her fork in hand because she knew the best was yet to come was eternal life. Tonight, as we get to this point in the study of Revelation, we look at the new Jerusalem, God giving us eternal life, and it causes our hearts great hope and great uh, celebration. What are the key events that have led us to this point in Revelation as we've seen the tribulation? Seven years of God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Then that was followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ, his return upon the white horse, which then we were introduced to the marriage feast of the Lamb. It was a few weeks ago, but we looked at this party that Christ is going to throw for his bride, where everything is going to be made right. Then there's the millennium, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ in Jerusalem, followed by the great white throne judgment. And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, Also, there was no more sea. This earth, this heaven, passes away, and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. This is far out, and it's hard for us to imagine and get our minds around, to think of Pikes Peak no longer being there, the Pacific Ocean not being there, looking up into the stars, the Big Dipper not being there. But God has shown us throughout his word that this earth is temporal, and that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. In Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, it says this, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, and they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail." And we see the earth with its groaning. We see the earth that it is temporal, that it's not going to last forever. And from God's perspective, he's just going to roll it up like a scroll. 
All right, I'm done with this. Second Peter chapter three tells us that this earth is gonna burn up with a fervent heat and all of the works that are in it. Yesterday with it being 9-11, we were watching the news coverage, the live news coverage from, from 9-11 17 years ago. And as we were watching it, the first tower falls and then the second tower falls. And it's surreal how even though the plane came into those towers, no one was expecting for them to fall, but when they did finally fall, they fell so quickly. And this huge structure that you're so used to being in the skyline of New York City was all of a sudden gone. And God, when he comes to this point where the old earth passes away, the old heavens pass away, it's gonna take place quickly, and then God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And as hard as it is for us to imagine of this earth passing away, it's even harder to imagine a new heaven and a new earth. So what is this new earth going to be like? What's the purpose of the earth? What's our interaction with the earth going to be? God doesn't tell us. We have very little information when it comes to this new heaven and new earth. I can't help but read this chapter and be filled with a sense of awe and wonder. What is this going to be like? What is this new earth and this new heaven going to be like? We focus in on New Jerusalem in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John, the disciple John, who's receiving this vision, if you're new to the study of Revelation, he sees the New Jerusalem. And it's coming down out of heaven from God, and it's prepared like a bride for her husband. There's probably no greater earthly moment for a man other than receiving Christ than to see his bride adorned walking down the aisle. When I'm at a wedding or doing a wedding, I enjoy taking a look back at the bride, but then looking at the groom and seeing his anticipation and his response for this prepared bride that is coming to greet him. And this is what heaven is described. God has prepared this amazing gift for us that he is giving to us, that he is providing for us. Jesus told us to not let our hearts be troubled because he's preparing a place for us. This life is difficult, it's painful, it's filled with sin, but yet even with that, it's wonderful. And heaven is going to be so much greater, this place that God has prepared for us. And now it's this unveiling of the new Jerusalem. Abraham set his eyes upon this city, a city with foundations. This life is changing, communities are changing, but heaven is sure. And he put his focus upon there. It's interesting that God describes heaven as a city. It's a community, it's a fellowship, it's a family, it's us joined to God, joined to one another. Heaven is not going to be alone. It's not going to be this isolated experience where we're by ourselves, we're with God, we're with one another, we're with God's people. It's wonderful. In verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. I heard a loud voice. This is the 20th time in the book of Revelation that John has heard a loud voice. (laughs) 
a loud voice declaring. And this is what the loud voice declares is, behold. And in the Greek language, behold is in the imperative tense, which means it's a command. God's saying, pay attention to this. The speaker is saying, I want you to look at this closely. The tabernacle of God is with men. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. It brings us back to the Old Testament. The children of Israel are traveling through the wilderness, and God instructed them to build a tabernacle, and that's the place that he would fellowship with his people. John chapter 1, it says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The New King James puts it, the word of God dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. It's always been God's intent to dwell with his people. This is his desire, and it's our purpose to dwell with God. This is what God had going on with Adam and Eve before they sinned. Sin was not a way of fellowship with God, so God would come and hang out with them in the cool of the day. Something nice about the cool of the day. Wouldn't it be great to literally sit with the Lord every evening, to see him, behold him, and talk to him? But sin separated our fellowship with God. Now that's fully been rectified. Christ has been crucified, risen. All things are taken care of, and we're able to dwell with God. He's able to dwell with us. And then see this relationship that we have with him. God himself will be with them and be their God. It's personal. It's, it's his personal relationship with us. Verse 4 is worth underlining, meditating on. If you want to go crazy, even just memorize it. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. When you think of tears being wiped from your face, it speaks of closeness of relationship. Not anybody's just going to be able to wipe tears from your eyes. Even though they may feel compassion and they may desire to, some stranger comes up to you and you're losing it to wipe the tears from your eyes. You're like, hey, back up. <laughs> Wait a second. I don't know you and the last thing I want you to do is touch my face. You're like, stay away from my face, right? It's a parent, you know, growing up as a child, your, your parent wiping the tears from your eyes. Parents, we know that of, of being able to hold our children and to, to wipe tears uh, from their eyes. Husbands and wives, you know this, right? Your, your spouse is grieving, they're crying, they're, they're losing it. You're there to comfort them and to wipe tears from their eyes. A close friend is going to be there for you in those times of difficulty and have that relationship to be able to, to wipe tears from your eyes. And so we see this closeness that God has with us in heaven, in eternity, to wipe away our tears to where they will be no more. There's no more crying. What is it that causes you to grieve here on this earth? What is it that causes you to, to weep this evening? It's temporary. Eventually, those tears are going to be met with the warm embrace of a loving father who's going to wipe away those tears, and we're never going to cry again. Heaven is going to be absent of crying, absent of grief, and absent of, of sorrow. There shall be no more death. That's going to be wonderful. Death is brutal, isn't it? Death's not a respecter of persons, and death is never satisfied. Until this point, when we get to heaven, 
Death, the grave is never going to go, I've got enough. It's going to continue to call out for more, more and more people dying and passing away. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered the grave. The grave was defeated. Eternal life was given. And now we enter into this where there will be no more death. No more having to go to a funeral. No more having to bury a loved one. Also, we're going to live with this reality that we don't have to face death again. We all know death is coming, right? It's part of our existence here. We don't know when it's coming, but eventually it's coming. Could you imagine being alive and not even having to worry about death? Like death's not even a possibility. There's no more death. And then no more pain. God's very descriptive in the things that he lists. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Many live in chronic pain. These tents groan for eternity, don't they? These tents are broken. And sometimes the Lord provides healing in this life, but many times we're waiting until eternal life to be healed. But there will be a point when we get to heaven when there is no more pain. There's, there's no more waking up in chronic pain, but fully embracing the glorified body that he has given to us. Now, let me remind you, as glorious as heaven is, it's God's choosing when to take us there. Amen? So we don't get to look at the glory of heaven and say, well, I want to be there right now, so I'm going to choose to take my life. That doesn't honor God. Because God is the author of our lives, and he gets to choose when he takes us home to be with the Lord. And until he takes us home, we want to book as many reservations for people in heaven as possible, right? We want to be sharing with them the glory of heaven and the goodness of God and asking them if they know Christ is their Savior. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. So the Father speaks and says, I make all things new. This is what God is doing. This is his plan of redemption, to be able to make all things new. We're a new creation. God has made us a new creation in Christ. But he's going to make everything new in this new Jerusalem. We're going to experience a glorified body that's absent of sin. And everything around us is going to be made new. As we've been studying in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. So man's endeavor, we repeat things over and over. It's an endless cycle. But here, God is able to create and make all things new. He also instructs, the voice of the Father instructs, write for these words are faithful and true. John, I want you to write these things down. And aren't you glad that he did? Aren't you glad that John was faithful to write these things down? And he said to me, it is done. Does that ring a bell? Anybody remember where that is uttered? It is done or it is finished. Jesus, when he died upon the cross, paid the price for redemption, declared it is finished. It is done. And now God has wrapped up all things. The rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, his plan for all of human history, it is done. It is finished. And that's what he declares at that moment. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Alpha being the first letter of the Greek language. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. God's saying, I'm the beginning. 
I'm the end. I'm the first and the last right after he declares it's done. So it's finished. It's the last crescendo of scripture. And then Jesus gives this statement saying, I am the alpha and the omega. The phrase I am is one of deity going back to Moses at the burning bush where he's saying, who is sending me to Pharaoh? And God says, I am that I am. In John's gospel, Jesus then defines that for us. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Christ continues that here by saying, I'm the alpha and I'm the omega. Wasn't Jesus the beginning for us? He was our salvation. He is our salvation. He authored our salvation. But also, he's the omega. He's the finisher. I just felt encouraged from the Lord today in some prayer time that the Lord was encouraging me, saying, Eric, I'm going to be faithful to you till the end. You know, you don't have to worry. Honor me, try to walk with me, and I, I'm going to be faithful to you. And sometimes we worry about what is yet ahead, don't we? God is a good finisher. It's baseball season here in Colorado. Haven't been a big baseball fan, but getting caught up with the Rockies a little bit here, especially against the Dodgers, right? And baseball's really about having a good finisher, if there's a good pitcher that comes in and is able to, to finish out the game well, that oftentimes results in a, a victory. And God is the author of our salvation, but he's the finisher. He who began a good work will be faithful to finish it in our lives as well. Continuing in verse 6, I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. So this is the new Jerusalem. This is heaven. And God is giving to us from the fountain of living water freely for everyone who thirsts. There won't be sin in heaven, but there's still a need for God. And there's still a thirst for fellowship with him. And we're going to have that for all of eternity, and Christ is going to freely give that to us. And tonight, he also is pouring out living water for those who thirst. To those that desire to come that are saying, Jesus, would you fill me, and I, I long for you. In verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. In 1 John 5, 5, it says, Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how do we overcome? By believing in Jesus, believing that he's in the Son of God, continuing to believe the gospel, abiding in the gospel. If you continue to believe the gospel and hold fast to the gospel, you're going to overcome. And as you overcome, you inherit all things. God giving you that heritage. And then notice the end of verse 7. I will be his God and he shall be my son. He shall be my child. Heaven is all about relationship. So heaven by atmosphere is great. No sin, wonderful food, Glorified body, no pain, no crying, sign me up, right? But the atmosphere is not the best part of heaven. The relationship is. The atmosphere is wonderful, but what we're really enjoying for all of eternity is the fact that he is our God and we're his children. One of the most powerful pictures of relationship that we have in scripture is the father-son relationship between Jesus and the heavenly father. Jesus speaking audibly from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
And because of the gift of Christ, we're brought into sonship, daughtership with God, to where we're the children of God. And we get to enjoy that without hindrance for all of eternity. Isn't that going to be wonderful? Right? You know, we may get bored in heaven if it was just atmosphere, but it's not. It's relationship. It's relationship with our Father. It's the fact that we're the child of God. I'm going to go into this a little bit deeper. Some of you may consider this to be a rabbit trail. It probably is. So I'm going to, I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a second. Is I think one of the most important things about our identity is the, to know that we're the child of God. You know, to not just believe it up here in our minds or be able to share it with others, but to really be able to rest in the Father's love. That he has created me, that he loves me, that he has unconditional love towards me, that I'm robed in Christ's righteousness, that this is who we are. I'm beloved by God. I'm the child of God. I'm the son of God, ladies. I'm the the daughter of God. And to really have that be the core of, of who we are. And oftentimes we're looking to our accomplishments or the things of this world. A lot of what Ecclesiastes describes, this endless pursuit, but it's really in the Father's love and that relationship with him. And I know a lot of times if there's been a a difficult relationship with a father, maybe even a mother, that it can be difficult to relate to God as your good heavenly father. But your earthly parent doesn't have to define your relationship with God. God can supersede that pain. He can heal that pain. And he can help us to understand and know and rest that, God, you are my father. And I am your child. And that's why Jesus, when he instructed us and he taught us to pray, said, our father. In Romans, it tells us that we're able to approach God as Abba. Abba's daddy, you know. Try starting out one of your prayers that way and see how weird it feels. Daddy. Yeah, God really wants us to be able to approach him with that kind of of tenderness. So for all of eternity, we're going to be enjoying this reality that we're children of God, that we've inherited all things from from him. In verse 8, But cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, when we read this, it's not saying that when we struggle with different aspects of sin that's listed here or any other sin, that we don't have eternal life. If if someone lies, it's not that they're not saved. But what this speaks to as someone who's not struggling or has given into one of these areas of sin, but it's their lifestyle. It defines who they are, and they're unwilling to repent. They're unwilling to be broken before God in these areas, and in essence saying, well, I believe the gospel, and I can continue in sexual immorality, and I know that I have eternal life. And one of the evidences that we are children of God is that the Spirit of God lives inside of us and is going to convict us of sin. I believe that if we are God's children, that when we're in sin, especially willfully rebellion against God, we will not be comfortable there. We are going to be convicted and we're going to struggle and we're going to go, Lord, I know that I've fallen short and I want to get right with you. 
So if you are struggling with one of these areas of sin or some other area of sin, and you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, that's good news. That's evidence that you are the child of God and God's calling you to repentance and and restoration. For some reason, if you find yourself in sin and there's no conviction, there's no remorse, there's there's no desire to change, and maybe even an attitude that says, well, I believe in Christ and I can do what I want and I can continue in this path of sin, you may want to re-examine your salvation. And that's between you and the Lord. I, I can't make that call for you. Only you and the Lord can. But to stop and say, do I really believe in Christ? Do I believe he died for me? Do I believe he, he rose again? And if so, then what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for how the Lord would desire for me to live my life? In verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So one of the seven angels that poured out the seven last plagues comes to John and says, I want to show you the lamb's bride. This had to have been fun for the angel because the seven plagues were like God's atomic bomb. It was the A-bomb, right? God bringing his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. But now is the good news. It's the church. It's the lamb's bride. And we have another illustration of relationship with God and his people. The church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 tells us that every Christian marriage should point to Christ in the church. That we as husbands, through God's power, his grace, loving our wives as Christ loves the church, and then wives submitting to their husbands, respecting their husbands the way the church respects Christ. So if you look at a healthy relationship where they love and respect one another, that's a picture of Christ in the church. That's the way that Jesus feels about us as the church. A husband that's head over heels in love with his wife and is longing to spend time with her, that's the way that God feels about you. That's the way that God feels about us and the culmination of all things is this Christ inheriting his bride. Again, this speaks of relationship. Heaven's going to all be about relationship with God. In verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like most precious stone, like a jasper stone, like a clear crystal. So John is able to get a vision into the great city, the holy Jerusalem. A contrast to this Jerusalem that we know today is referred to as Sodom, not always spiritually pure, but here, this is the holy Jerusalem. It's descending out of heaven, and God's glory is in the new Jerusalem. Important word to consider is the word like. So we don't know exactly the appearance of the new Jerusalem, but it's like a precious stone, like a jasper stone, like clear, clear crystals. So you get this picture of great light and majesty in the appearance of new Jerusalem. In verse 12, also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the name written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So we know around Jerusalem is a high wall with 12 gates 
and there's an angel by each gate. And then on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. All of this, I think, expresses the grace of God. Because when you really look at the 12 tribes of Israel, these guys were less than exemplary. I mean, you start off with Joseph being sold as a slave by his brothers. I mean, who needs brothers like that? I mean, first they wanted to kill him. Then they decide to sell him as a slave. You thought your siblings were bad. You need to text your siblings tonight and just say, hey, I appreciate you. Thanks for not selling me as a slave, right? And you read in Genesis, we're gonna get there fairly soon when we get into the book of Genesis and we'll see just the absolute mess that the family is in. Sexual sin, I mean, you name it. Uh, And it's taking place amongst these 12 sons, Jacob's 12 sons. But it's out of these 12 sons that God births the nation of Israel. The birth of the nation of Israel was a testimony of God's grace. Then when you look at the history of Israel, it's not all that pretty. They're God's chosen people, but by the fact that God stays with Israel as a testimony of his unconditional love, which encourages us as Gentiles. Because if God gave up on Israel, how much more so would there be room to give up on us? Children of Israel are rebellious. They're in idolatry. God has every right to cast them away, but he doesn't do that and is faithful to them. So God putting their names on the gates is a testimony of his grace, and ultimately his son comes through the nation of Israel. Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah. Verse 13. Hey, guys, I'm glad you're here on this Wednesday night because when we get to heaven, God's word's not gonna pass away, and we'll be able to walk around together and look for the 12 gates, all right? So we're getting the details here. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Highly doubtful that Judas is the 12th apostle, right? So who is the 12th apostle? Can we get a vote for the apostle Paul? I mean... I just, I don't think it's going to be Thaddeus, but we may be surprised. It could be Thaddeus. In the book of Acts, they drew straws to find the the 12th apostle, and they came up with Thaddeus. And I'm sure Thaddeus was a great guy, but it sure seems like God's choice was the apostle Paul. Now, a lot of people have differing views on that. So when you get to heaven, go around and look at the at the foundation and see what the 12th name is, you know, if it is Paul or if it's Thaddeus or we may be surprised and it's someone we didn't realize. Again, this is a testimony of God's grace. As we study the gospels, the gospels show us that the disciples are very human and have real struggles and sin and fall short. Jesus loves them, instructs them, and they're willing to follow Christ, and God uses them. If God used perfect people in the book of Acts, in the Gospels, we'd go, there's no hope for us, right? And so by the fact that their names are, are written in the foundations is a testimony of God's grace as well. In verse 15, And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. I mean, New Jerusalem's so nice that the tape major's even in gold. (laughs) 
That'd be pretty cool, guys, huh? Talk about a Christmas gift. But So here he is with a gold uh, reed to, to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed between 2,000 furlongs. Its length and its breadth and height are equal. So the city is laid out in a square. So it's difficult for us to get our minds around this, but the furlongs come out to, it equals 1,400 miles. That's roughly the distance from Florida to Maine. So that's just one part of the square. So you go all the way around and you have a great distance, but it's also a cube. Some think it's a pyramid or a cube, but there's definitely a dimension of New Jerusalem that goes this way. The breadth is mentioned as well. So this is a very large city with plenty of room for everyone who has ever believed in Christ. So try to get your mind around this city where we get to travel this way and this way. You know, we're, we're simply used to doing this, but there's going to be some amazing things uh, in heaven. Then he measured its wall 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And so this can't be the distance around because we've already gotten that measurement. So this 144 cubits has to be the width of, of the walls. And so the width of the walls is about 72 yards. A cubit is about 18 inches. So three-fourths of a football field. That's how thick uh, these walls are. So if you want to, you'll probably be able to take a run on the wall. No problem, right? In verse 18, the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear, clear glass. So the building material for heaven is pure gold, the best possible gold imaginable. We get a description of the foundation. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardix, the sixth, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite. Sounds like something you would add in your water to get electrolytes. The eighth Burel, the ninth Topaz, the tenth Chryslophaz, the eleventh Jacob, and the twelfth Amethyst. Now, I have no idea if I pronounced all those right, but you probably don't either, so we're okay, right? <laughs> so these amazing precious stones, these amazing gems are the foundation of heaven, and it's beautiful. Again, it's all with this analogy of it's like this. When you think of a foundation, it's very important because it's where the stability is. Most of the time, foundations are hopefully structurally sound, but they're not architecturally beautiful. I remember when we were building out this side of the church building in 2007, and it was ready in 2008. We delayed in getting our building permit, which is often the case with building permits, and we, we finally got the building permit right before winter. And it was one of the snowiest winters that I can remember. We're digging, this was a field, and we're digging it out and, and digging it out. And then laying a foundation for this building 
right next to the foundation of the old building, which used to be a jumbo sports that had been our, our sanctuary, where the two buildings are, are joined. This is too much information, but the, the one thing we really missed on the plans when we did out the new building was how narrow this doorway is on this side, right? Most of the foot traffic is on this side to the old building instead of the larger doors. But we're just reminded that narrow is the way to eternal life, right? When we're standing at that door. But all of that to be said is the foundation was really interesting to, to watch. It'd be, be poured and be laid. But it was not necessarily beautiful, right? But this heavenly foundation is not only structurally sound, but it's beautiful. It's made out of these amazing gems to where God gives us the details of it. In verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the individual gate was one pearl. This is phenomenal, right? 12 gates, 12 pearls, but each pearly gate is one giant pearl. That has to be a big oyster. <laughs> but God's creating all this, so he doesn't need an oyster to, to be able to, to do it. And then we go on and we read, And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The streets are paved with gold. What statement is God making by telling us that the streets are paved with gold? Gold is one of the most valuable things here on earth. I don't know what the current price is, but at one point that I checked, it was like $1,600 an ounce, right? One ounce of gold, $1,600. And what is most valuable here on earth from a monetary value is the least valuable in heaven, it's what we use to pave the streets in heaven. Like here, it's asphalt, and asphalt's not very valuable. That's why we use it for our roads. So the most valuable thing on earth is the least valuable in heaven. It's going to be that much different of a scale when we get to heaven and we get in, into eternal life. In verse 22, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a temple. The temple's purpose was to be a dwelling place with God and men. But now we're able to fully enter into fellowship with God, so there's no temple. Just complete, pure worship and relationship with God. The city had no need of sun or of moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamp is its light. So in heaven, in this new Jerusalem, there's no sun, there's no moon. The face of Jesus is all we need to light up all of eternity. Now that's an LED bulb right there, right? So there's no night, there's no sleep. There's no need to have to sleep. The lamb is the light. In verse 24, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. There will be those that are saved from all nations. God is the creator of culture, the creator of language and ethnicity, and to be able to see all the nations joined together walking in the light of Christ, it's going to be phenomenal. The end of verse 24 is interesting. It says, and the kings of the earth shall bring glory and honor into it. And then continue that thought in verse 25. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. 
and they shall bring glory and honor of the nations into it. So apparently there's going to be kings of the earth that are coming into the new Jerusalem inside these gates. So why would there be gates? There's gates, and they're staying open all the time. And then the kings of the earth, they come and they present glory and honor of the nations to Jesus Christ. And all I can say is, what in the world is that? You know, like, what in the world are these kings of the earth, and what are they doing coming into heaven, presenting the glory of the the nations? But then once again, we're just left in awe and wonder of what heaven's going to be like, and this new earth is going to be like uh, as well. And so there's been a lot written on these verses, but ultimately, I think we don't know. We don't know exactly what that is or what that's going to be like. But there is the certainty in verse 27, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So even though these kings of the earth are coming in, they're not able to bring in any abomination or any wicked thing. And it's only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life that are in the new Jerusalem, that are in heaven. Now, you maybe have heard me say this before, but maybe you haven't, is there's one place you want to make sure that your name is written. There's one place you want to make sure that your name is known, right? Maybe if you're getting a rental car or you're getting a hotel and you walk up to the desk and you say, do you have a reservation for, and you give your last name, and they give you that deer in headlights look, it's inconvenient. Yeah, I might have to find another hotel or another rental car. But to get to heaven and for God to not have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, it has eternal consequences. The only ones that are in heaven are those who have their names written in God's book of salvation. Now, thankfully, it's not a mystery on how to get your name written in the Lamb's book of life. It's to respond in faith to Christ's invitation. Jesus says, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't think that Jesus was simply interested in us getting fire insurance, right? And to go, this is the best deal on life insurance. They didn't have to take my blood or even check my blood pressure, right? I just had to believe. So I, I, Jesus, I believe, and I, I'm going to heaven. But we find in Romans 10, 9 and 8 that it says to believe in our heart and to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. It's the deepest part of us to believe and know that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again, turning from sin and inviting him to be our Lord, where he's the master of our lives. He takes control of our lives. Doesn't mean that we do everything perfectly, but there is this acknowledgement If I've made a mess of me, and I'll continue to make a mess of me, Jesus, I want you to have my life. I think many times, if we're not ready for Jesus to change our lives, we're not ready to be saved. Because he wants to save us from hell, but he also wants to free us from sin in this life, because he knows that sin destroys us. But if you're at a place tonight where you say, you know what, I'm tired of sinning. I'm tired of, of falling short. I know that I'm making a mess of me and I'm ready to turn from my sin and believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. Then God's response is he's gonna save you. He's gonna write your name in the Lamb's book of life and begin to then work in your life and change your life. And as we enter into communion, if you haven't received Christ as your savior, please come. 
please find someone on the ministry team and let them know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. Maybe you came with someone who's a believer. Turn to them and say, hey, would you pray with me? I'm ready to receive Christ. But your eternity is going to be determined by your faith or your unbelief in, in Jesus Christ. So let's seek to apply this for just a moment. I want to remind us of a couple of verses about eternity. These are the words of Christ in John 14. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And there where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise. Are you having a difficult day, a difficult year? Is your heart troubled? Focus on eternity, this place that Jesus is preparing for you, and then he's going to be with you for all of eternity. Is the dishwasher broken? It's not going to be an eternity, right? Is the toilet clogged? It's not going to be an eternity. Did you lose your temper today and sin? You're not going to in eternity, right? Did you get a huge medical bill that you weren't expecting? You're not going to get that in eternity, right? There's not going to be elections in eternity. God is elected once and for all, right? And to really allow our focus to be on eternity. And Job 19, Job's story was one of intense suffering. He's in the middle of the suffering. And this is what he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold it, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job believed in the resurrection of his body. With these eyes I'm going to behold the Lord. And we know that our bodies are going to be resurrected. They are going to be glorified. And we're going to behold the Lord. And that's what we hold on to in this life. And that's what we hold on to in intense uh, suffering. I shared a a little while ago that my dad uh, battles Parkinson's disease. He's 66 years old. And so his body is failing him. His tent is, is failing him. And just a couple weeks ago when we went through the section on the marriage feast of the Lamb, after I was done with that message, and I think it was the next morning, I just woke up and I couldn't help but think my dad being at the marriage feast of the Lamb with a glorified body and having his body work and function the way that God has intended it to better than it ever did here on this earth. And it just filled my heart with joy. I I hope my dad has a bunch more years here on earth because we sure enjoy him. But I know that the moment that he goes home to be with the Lord, he's going to be rocking it in his glorified body in worship before the Lord. Dancing, doing burpees at the throne room of God, right? You know? (laughs) And everything is going to be made right in heaven. That's what we look forward to. And we truly do desire to share the love of Christ and have as many people as possible come with us. So church... Hold on to your fork. The best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the hope and the reality of of heaven, of eternal life. We thank you that it's not just a wish or a whim, but a confident expectation. 
It's going to be so wonderful to wake up in your likeness, Jesus, to not struggle with sin and give in to sin, to not have pain and sorrow. And Lord, we pray for those that don't know you, that they would be instructed and revealed of your love and your great sacrifice. And God, may we really be encouraged with the truth of heaven and be willing to share the gospel with as many as possible. So as we take communion, as we celebrate communion, we proclaim your death till you come. We look forward to the day where we're going to celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb with you in heaven. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.